Hi, this is Dennis Sarah from Evil Podcast. Like you, I'm listening to Minds of Madness. Enjoy. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. This episode contains descriptions of extreme violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In episode 13, you heard how a former colleague of mine named Chester Abbotsbury, who found himself in an unimaginable position. In self-defense, he struck and killed a man who wouldn't leave his home. We last left off with Chester, handcuffed in the back of a police car, being informed that he was now being charged with second-degree murder. But before we continue on this part of Chester's story, Let's take a brief look back into his childhood and see how the path he was on led him to a devastating series of events. Join me now as we venture back into the life of Chester Abbotsbury, where his fateful journey begins. first just like to remind you that we conducted two interviews with Chess, one where we met in person and the second over the phone. You'll hear a difference in sound quality between the two. I do want to ask you about your childhood. Um, sure. I remember the sleeping in the drawer story. We're not wealthy people necessarily. My mom was a homemaker and there were four of us, but when I was born there was no crib and I slept in an empty chest of drawers. I just emptied out one of the drawers and made a little bed in there, and that's what I slept in, right in the room with them. It seemed to work out well enough. Um, I was in Winnipeg, and I was only there for a year. Um, and then we moved down to the suburbs of Toronto, and that's where I grew up. I grew up in the Great White Wasteland, as I call it, because it was very ethnically homogenous. There was a lot of diversity, cultural diversity, where I grew up. And my younger brother was in the same class as Leslie Mahaffey. She was one of Paul Bernardo's victims. And where I grew up, I think the entire Golden Horseshoe, right from St. Catharines around, probably Whitby, was terrified at that time, these girls going missing and, and what was going on. And so there was this kind of weird magnified, amplified chivalry that started up where dads and brothers wouldn't let moms and sisters and daughters go out on their own and that type of thing and there was a lot of fear at that time and I think that part of the reason that I took this girl off the street or helped her get off the street anyway was that 
very overdeveloped sense of protection for someone I knew and, and liked. He was no stranger to substance abuse. At a very early age, he was aware of a dependency his father had developed to a medication he was on and his mother's struggle with alcohol abuse. My father got sick, very sick, and was put on very high doses of steroids, and that was about the time my mom started drinking as well, pretty heavily. I'm not a very angry guy, um, and part of the reason that I'm, I don't have much of an anger response is that I learned that getting angry at my dad only resulted in getting him angrier. And so I found ways to kind of sidestep the aggression whenever possible, um, while also not necessarily deflecting it onto other people. Yeah, you, you learn some pretty weird skills in terms of diffusing situations and, and trying to walk away from them and choosing your battles wisely, knowing when it's worth fighting and when not. Because quite often it's a fight you can't win. So now you've had a glimpse into the circumstances that led Chess to the person he was back in 2010. Let's fast forward to when we last left off with Chess and found him sitting in the back of the police cruiser. Like me, you may be confused how a man defending himself in his home could turn into a second-degree murder charge, so Chess explains. The laws in Canada are a bit weird, and I learned about this after the fact, but it doesn't really matter how much bigger the person is if they're of the same sex. Um, it's kind of considered a fight, and as soon as you grab a weapon, uh, regardless of the size differential, you all of a sudden become the perpetrator. When it comes to different sexes and even different age groups, you know, if, if it's a woman or a child versus a full-grown male, the calculus is done somewhat differently. So you would probably go and you might spend some time in jail while it got sorted out. Depends on, obviously, how seriously injured the other person was and also what else was going on. Chess then tells us what happened to him next. They took me into something that hung right off of the garage that I'd been taken out of the car in. And there was a little desk with an officer sitting up on it and the officer who brought me in kind of walked me up to it and I emptied out my pockets and they were inventoried. And I was then taken off for a strip search. They took my clothes and gave me a paper suit because of course they want to check for blood spatter and that type of thing. So I was wearing this paper suit they call a bunny suit, hazmat suit. After his strip search, the police interrogation began. So I was taken to an interview room and there were two detectives who were kind of taking turns coming in and asking me questions, which I kept refusing to answer, wanting to 
talk to a lawyer. And I don't know how long they had me in that room. There was no clock, no window, no sense of time at all. I knew Jane was making her report and I didn't tell her to hold anything back. I told her to tell the truth. I didn't know how these things worked. I thought the circumstances might come out and things might have been different. I didn't realize that I was about to spend the next six years in jail or prison. The police finally allowed me to make my phone call because I didn't actually have a criminal lawyer and never needed one before. They called up duty counsel and the first thing duty counsel asked me was, what have you told them so far? You've been there a long time. And I said, well, I haven't told them anything. They keep asking questions, but I've been trying to get this phone call. I said, you're the smartest one I've ever talked to. Don't tell them a thing. They're gonna convince you that you can make it better, that the charges will be diminished or that this will look better. There's nothing you can say that will make it better. They're only trying to get you to admit to things that'll make it worse. There's nothing, nothing in the world that you can say that'll make it better. And that made a bit of sense, was a bit disheartening. But I shut up and the duty counsel said, tomorrow you'll go to the provincial court. You'll see a justice of the peace. You're probably not gonna get bail at all due to the magnitude of the charge. Given a bit of time and a bit of investigation, there's a chance the charges might be lessened, but that's highly doubtful. They're probably going to go and try and come up with a theory to increase it, so don't be surprised when that happens. And I was taken out to the holding cell for the night. He slept on a bed that he described as a small metal table that his legs hung over without a blanket and a broken zipper on his paper bunny suit. He was forced to hold his suit together or find himself completely exposed. He was cold, alone, and as you can imagine, very afraid. He likely felt this night would never end. You're processing all of this. Yeah. And you've been told now you're getting charged with well, second-degree murder. Yeah, and I was... cried my eyes out. I was awfully scared. I mean, something horrible had happened, right? And something that couldn't be undone. Chester walks us through his court appearance the following day. And with my mom sitting there in the... in the gallery, and me in the prisoner's box. My mom just was looking at me, shaking her head, disappointed in me. Nerdy IT guy with the close haircut, sharp dressing son, ends up living with a prostitute and killing her drug dealer. What's going on here? I was obviously denied bail that day. Bail is a very difficult thing to get in Canada in general for any major crime um, and takes at least weeks to get. And I was taken to the dawn. And I got to hand in my bunny suit and put on an orange jumper. With Chester's lawyer instructing him not to talk to anyone regarding his case, including his own family, we could only imagine the unbearable weight of the situation he now found himself in.
Yeah, and that's part of the reason that I measured out a length of clothes hanging line in my Salmadon to see if it was strong enough to hold my weight to hang myself. Yeah, for sure. There was a an enormous sense of dread about what would happen. I'd come back from seeing my parents in the room and the look of, of shame and guilt and disappointment in my mom's eyes. My dad looked like a rabbit in headlights. His eyes kind of glazed over and bloodshot. It was really hard on them, obviously. There was a lot of regret and remorse immediately about what had happened and the consequences it had had. Not knowing what to do to make up for it or to make it right. I was in totally uncharted territory in terms of my own life and experience where you're just worried about your own survival from moment to moment and day to day and so I went from an environment where there was one bully in my house to 53 bullies on a range that I was locked in with and had to navigate. One of the hardest parts, and this went right from those many hours in the bunny suit through until I pled. One of the hardest parts is that you can't really talk to anyone. And if you're on any type of serious charge and have any type of serious lawyer, they're going to tell you, don't tell anyone a thing. If you tell your Sully, there's a chance he's going to rat on you. The cops have been known to put people in orange and put them on ranges to ask questions of guys and get chummy with them over the span of like a week. And if you tell people in your family or your friends, they can be called to testify and forced to testify against you based on what they've heard. And so you've got to keep it all inside. And you can tell people until you're blue in the face that it's not as bad as it looks and you know there are, there are explanations and there are circumstances that they don't know about but until they know the facts it's going to be pretty hard to believe right on the face of it especially when it ends up on city pulse 24 and in the newspaper and that type of thing and so it ends up being a very lonely trip i went two years without hugging my mom it's a long time Chester describes his first experience in the provincial or county jail he refers to as the Don. It was right around the time that a guy had been beaten to death over a bag of chips. Made the media. It was a big deal. There was another guy who had been stomped to death in a cell by three other guys. There was a guy who came in and he had a whole bunch of heroin with him. He brought it up as and he was giving that out to guys and they thought that he was sick and so they put him on the medical range and he was just handing it out like candy and 
one of the guys he gave it to woke up dead, as the guard told us one morning when we were locked in. Nope, someone on medical just woke up dead. So we got to search everything now and find out why. I'm pretty sure we know. But that December, January, and February, in each of those months, someone died. And I thought to myself, this jail holds 600 people. And if one a month dies, that's 12 in the year. And 12 divided by 600 is a 2% chance of dying. 2%. And on a range of 50 guys, and I think it was 53 per range, that meant one of them would be gone by year's end. That's a pretty horrible thought to carry around with you. Chess explains the physical toll this experience took on his personal health. So I first got bleeding ulcers. I started feeling really sick with a lot, a lot of heartburn and not able to sleep. And over the span of a couple of weeks, I threw up a lot of blood. And that was entirely because of the, the tension through the experience. It takes its toll for sure. You keep kind of bottling everything up all inside because you can't talk to anyone about it. You're writing letters about how easy and wonderful everything is to make your family feel better. And you're living with some pretty dangerous, desperate people. It definitely takes its toll. A lot of suicides in jail and prison. I remember being locked down in Penetang though and hearing that two brothers, two native guys, had hung themselves from the top tier and that's why we were locked down. The two of them had committed suicide together. Waited for the guards to do a round and they tied nooses out of their bed sheets and they hugged each other and, and jumped off the top tier. That was it. Chess then told me about his first mentor and how he started adapting to life behind bars. My first Sully in the Dawn, Prince of Bike Thieves. Do you remember him? He was all over the paper. 18 warehouses full of bikes. The end of my street. Yeah, right by our old office. He was just north of where we used to work. He was my first Sully. So he kind of taught me the ropes he'd been in for a while. But you settle in, certainly. You get into a bit of a routine. You make a few alliances. They say that you arrive alone, you'll leave alone. You don't make friends in jail. And for the most part, that's true. But you definitely want to go and have some allegiances and some allies and some people who have some sort of interest in your well-being. After sitting with Chess for a few hours, Listening to his story, I had a hard time grasping the idea that this 160-pound network geek that I remembered was sitting there recounting to me his experience of killing a man and now in jail. It was all a bit surreal and hard to believe that this was the same guy. Both you and I were pretty skinny guys back then. 
and I, I just I can't imagine you know, being the twenty-something. You know, the most most craziest thing I mean that I had ever dealt with was just you know getting into drunken silliness out of the clubs and stuff. Sure. What's going through your head? Well, I got hit a lot when I arrived. I didn't know the rules, right? Most of the guys on my range had been coming and going for years. A lot of guys who are kind of low-level thieves, and for the most part, it was that type of guy. You had some people who were in for kind of assault and, and that type of thing, but in general, it's a lot of guys who are doing like 30 or 60 days for theft under. So they knew the rules. And it was difficult at first, but I learned pretty quickly, I think. As Chess settled into prison life, his case was still going through the Canadian judicial system. Little did Chester know that his situation had the potential of becoming more severe than what he was expecting. I was going to court once or twice a month just to hear what was going on in terms of discovery and handing evidence over and, and setting dates and what things looked like. So there was no blood spatter where I said this had happened and where the altercation occurred. There was in the bedroom, however. And so the Crown had hatched a theory that I had killed him in his sleep and wanted to increase it to first-degree murder. Just as Chess thought his plea bargain was heading in the right direction, he received some devastating news. After about a year and a half, my lawyer had me going in just about every week because they were working on a deal. And the deal looked to be about four or five years for manslaughter. And I was pretty open to that. I thought it was the right thing to do. And I arrived at the day we were supposed to do the deal and the deal got pulled. And in the interview room after the court date, when I was sent back, my lawyer told me that the PMO had called up the Attorney General's office and had reviewed all the deals that were on the table as part of their tough on crime agenda under Harper and had pulled the vast majority of them looking for more time. And it wasn't until another five months after that that my lawyer said to me, well, they're offering a deal again, uh, and you're not going to like it. It's like double what it was before. I said, well, I've been in for almost two years. With the dead time at two for one, that's only six years. And he said, no, you don't understand. They want ten more. And so I'd been arrested right around the time of the Truth and Sentencing Act. My dead time was given at one for one, and I was given ten years more. Dead time is the time a person spends in jail before his or her bail hearing, and time spent in jail after unsuccessful bail hearings, but before a trial or sentencing begins. During the time of Chess's incarceration, people serving time in a Canadian facility awaiting trial were credited two days for every day spent in the facility. So I went to court I accepted the plea 
And from there, I went back to the Don. And of course, one freaks out a little bit. But going to the pen is still a big scary thing, right? That's what you're trying to avoid through the whole process. A trip down below, as they call it. So all of the pen timers um, refer to the system as being down below. As you've most likely gathered by now, chess is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to facts. But I really wanted to get to the heart of all he had experienced. I really want to get some feeling about your absolute personal experience how supportive your family was to you. I really want to get some of the more personal stuff. I remember a profound feeling the first time I got to go to yard. I could take my shoes and socks off and touch the ground because it was the first time in two years that I'd done so. The entire time that I was in provincial, I hadn't been under the sky without something over me, whether it be a netting or a roof or chain link fence. And I hadn't touched the actual earth. It had always been asphalt or concrete, wherever I'd been. That's a pretty bizarre feeling to know that you've been so disconnected from the world. We're housed in a, in a box of concrete and asphalt and, and steel. Seeing the stars at night was awfully profound as well. Chester continued to share the challenges of life in the pen. It's a pretty horrible place to live where you're cut off from any meaningful human contact. You know, you're visiting your loved ones across plate glass with a phone. Um, phone calls to my family cost $15 each just for a few minutes. So, and you're not getting all chummy with the guys you're with, right? You're always a little bit defensive with them. Um, and there's a lot of kind of gung-ho male bravado that goes on in there. There's not a lot of prison sex that goes on in Canada. There's certainly no prison rape that I know of, and other wardens have gone on the record talking about how they don't think it's a problem in this country compared to the States. Um, and there's very little consensual sex that happens these days as well. Not many guys go in and become gay for the stay as they used to in the 70s and 80s. And that's partially due to the changing prison population. But to keep guys relatively happy and to keep them from rioting and burning the place down, they feed them relatively decent food. One point I found interesting was how a simple food item was so cherished by inmates, it had a monetary value. One of the things that gets used as currency is peanut butter. So you get very little peanut butter, like three teaspoons of peanut butter a week. And peanut butter is a comfort food for a lot of people. So peanut butter ends up being one of the currencies um, that people gamble over, that have a value. And so I think one of the little disposable uh, containers of Jif went for like 50 cents of canteen. If you bought a guy a dollar bag of chips, it would get you two peanut butter. Couldn't buy peanut butter on canteen. Um, and it was traded for a whole bunch of things. But that was its equivalent monetary value was about 50 cents worth of canteen or whatever it was. And everything has a value there. Everything that can be sold anyway. When you have very little, it's amazing to see just what guys are able to accumulate. So we're sitting there talking about gambling for peanut butter. And Chess moved on 
to talking about the violence and how easily it could erupt. I've seen guys take golf pencils to each other in a fight. They go for the jugular, right? The idea is that the, the lead breaks off before it can do too, too much damage. There's a lot of violence. Guys who spend a lot of time in Max talk about having to step over bodies on their way to breakfast. And things have changed quite a bit since the implementation of cameras and... Yeah, they were pretty violent places, for sure. What was the most violent thing you saw? <laughs> I didn't personally witness a lot of violence beyond kind of the usual banging out or fight. There was a pretty massive brawl when a couple of guys came onto our range from, or in the dawn, and decided they were going to take it over. And so those two guys and two of the four quartermen got into a fight, and that was pretty, pretty bloody. The usual rule is that if there's going to be a fight, the rule in the dawn was anyway, you are supposed to both take off your jumpers and go down to your boxers and wear your shoes in, and you did it in the shower where the coppers couldn't see it. And after the fight, you were supposed to shake hands and the beef was supposed to be squashed. It very rarely happened that way. But the one guy who'd arrived on the range had done that. He'd said, you guys want to do this? All right, let's go. And he took off his jumper and he went back to the shower and he just waited and bring it on. He was huge. He was a monster, this guy. And the other guy who had arrived with him got to kind of the entryway to where the showers were when things popped off with him. And the second quarterman went around him while he was fighting and just got flattened by the guy who was in the shower. Went running up to him all ready to swing and, and took one right to, uh, right to his jaw and just dropped, just dropped. Saw another enormous guy, probably the same size, lunge across a picnic table trying to stab another guy in the jugular with a golf pencil. I've seen a lot of guys come out of a bathroom all bloody. See, the violence isn't often very public, right? Because it has to happen in a quiet place after the guards do around and away from where they're watching. Um, and you don't want a whole lot of people being involved because you can always tell when a fight is either about to happen or occurring because everyone's staring and everyone's kind of gathering around. Um, and if you want to go under the wire and, and have um, like a normal beef, then you go and you find a quiet place and you get someone to watch the door so that no one else can come in and you do whatever you need to do and maybe one guy leaves, the other guy doesn't. Certainly I heard a lot of stories and there were a number of deaths. As I sat there listening, I found myself wondering about Chess's family, given what he had earlier told me about his childhood and the reaction to him in the courtroom. I was curious if his parents had visited him in the penitentiary or shown him any type of support. He explained that not only had they contributed a substantial amount of money towards his lawyer fees, but they did visit him as often as they could. I was also pleasantly surprised. So had some of our former co-workers. I kind of discouraged my family to some degree in coming to visit me. And as much as I wanted to see them, I knew that the hoops they had to jump through to do so with the 
drug-sniffing dogs and being patted down and the long lineups and the chance that they drive three or four or five hours through city traffic and then coming back to Kingston that they'd be turned away because we were locked down because someone got stabbed up after breakfast and visits had all been cancelled. I knew that that took a lot out of them. I certainly got a lot more energy and support from my friends who, and a lot of them were our old colleagues and so uh, people we've known for 15, 17, 18 years. They would come out and it would be a bit more lighthearted and, and I would always go back to my cell all charged up after a day in the visiting area. Certainly when my parents came, it was a very heavy, heavy, difficult day because I, ver I felt that I was supporting them through it, making them feel better. I used to call it the black eye check. They come out a couple times a year and, and see if I had black eyes. Chess's siblings also wanted to visit him, but he discouraged them as well, as this wasn't a place he wanted their children to experience. Three of my siblings have kids, and one of them wanted to bring my nephews out, and, and I said, no way, I don't want them seeing this. The barbed wire and, and all that. They're awfully imposing institutions and they're kind of intentionally so, um, with the watchtowers and in the maximum institutions, there's a guard up at that watchtower with a rifle over their shoulder ready to, ready to use it at any minute. Kind of reminded you where you were. I never liked walking around the yard underneath a rifle. You could see on the gym wall, on like the external part of the wall from the yard, where they'd fired warning shots into the building. So there were all these little kind of bullet dents in the, in the, uh, the siding. It's like a corrugated steel type of thing. One of my follow-up questions with Chess included asking what his experience was like after being paroled and transitioning back into society. When one first comes out, they've been starved of any human affection for quite a long time. Um, but if and when the system works as it should, people are moved through the system in such a way that they get slowly back closer to society you get more and more interaction with normal, regular, everyday people instead of just guards in uniform and your peers in prison. I was happy to hear that Chess had found love after his ordeal, and I even had the opportunity to meet her. I'd wondered how they met and when he told her about his past. Uh, okay, Cupid. So I set up a profile, and it's partially just for a little contact. I spent a lot of time just chatting with people, and that's how we started. Then there was a phone number, and then there was an invitation to meet. And at that point, when she asked me to meet her for a drink, I said, well, hold on. This is going along really well and all, but there's something you really need to know. She comes from a pretty far left-leaning 
background and is also a prison abolitionist and decided to make a go of it. She came by and instead of going out for a drink, she came by to give me a hug. You know, to get right down to it, um, there was a sense that it could go horribly wrong, but if it did, it would be for the best um, because it was going to come out sometime or another and rather earlier than later when it would have hurt a lot more. Um, after just a few weeks of kind of chatting and, and some talks on the phone, I have no shame in general in disclosing. I try and keep my personal and private lives separate from kind of my professional life. So I don't disclose professionally, but personally I do. As this story is coming to an end, I'm sure like me, you're wondering what happened to Jane? Jane ended up not doing any jail time, but doing a very extended probation with a lot of very stringent conditions. For her drug charges, which she pled to, she was down on 14 counts of actually trafficking. And the judge gave her one last chance, knowing kind of all the things that had gone on and that she'd been trying to change her life when all of this went on. She's able to get herself housing and a job and clean herself up. And at this point, she's pretty happy and healthy and doing all right for herself. I didn't know even a quarter of what I know now about Chess. And I feel bad it took all this to really get to know the guy. I'm grateful for everything Chess shared with me, knowing how difficult it must have been. It's clear to see the strength in his character, having endured all this. I hope Chester's story is able to help others who are struggling with dependency or addiction, or anyone that might be feeling they're in a situation they can't get out of. If there's one thing I think Chester's story demonstrates, is that however bad you may think the situation is that you found yourself in. It can always get worse. I would encourage anyone struggling in a similar situation to seek out the support systems in your area. Whether it be family, friends, co-workers, or local organizations. And I wish Chester all the best. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au 
slash G-E. Someone's standing at my door I heard they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run